Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. So we had a little bit of technical difficulty tonight, but we won't let any uh, distraction get in our way. I'm excited to have with us tonight um, an author and scholar, uh, someone who has um, uh, been at the forefront of thinking about and putting uh, pen to paper on a few issues that uh, people may talk about but may not uh, write about. And so um, I'm delighted to welcome and introduce you to Richard V. Reeves. Uh, welcome, Richard. Thank you for having me on. Yes, and so Richard is actually a fellow, a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution, and he holds the John C. and Nancy D. Whitehead Chair um, there. He's the author of other books and articles. Uh, we're going to jump right in, and Richard, I, I really appreciate your patience tonight and uh, appreciate you for coming on all together um, about um, your, your new book on uh, why the modern male is struggling. You know, I, I do understand that in some ways that when we 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 decide to focus uh, in a variety of, of uh, areas, um, sometimes we can we can forget where we've made progress and and start to lag and 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 not do so well in other areas. And so um, I you know when I when I saw your initial article about this, I, I thought you made some really good points about um, why uh, the modern male is struggling. I wanted to give you an opportunity to come on and, and share a little bit from your book um, and and your thoughts. And, you know, as I've, I've said before, you know, there's no such thing as you're talking too much. So please um, expand and, and tell us a little bit about, um, about yourself, what you're doing at Brookings, and then please tell me, um, uh, a little bit about your book. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. And you can probably you'll be able to tell almost immediately that I'm a I'm a recovering Brit. I moved to the US ten years ago. I've raised my boys. I have three boys. I've raised them in both the UK yes. and the US. They're all now in their twenties. And like, I, I always think that all scholarship is at least a bit autobiographical. It's just a question of whether you're honest about it or not. And so you know, raising three boys definitely focuses your mind on the challenges that they they face. But but then in my day job where I work on issues around inequality, family policy, employment, I just kept tripping over data points that I, I couldn't ignore any longer, and um, because I think there are there are a neglected part of our debate about opportunity and inequality and flourishing and well being in the US today. And so like I knew, for example, the boys had fallen behind in education, but I didn't know that that men were further behind women today in colleges than women were behind men in nineteen seventy two when we passed Title IX. I knew that, you know, men weren't doing very well in employment, but I didn't know that most men today were earning less than most men did in nineteen seventy nine. I knew that men were more likely to take their own lives. I didn't know that they were four times more likely to commit suicide. Wow. than women. I knew that men made up the majority of opioid deaths. I didn't know that it was almost three in four of opioid deaths. And so I just kept stumbling across these data points. And then, of course, when you look at it through the lenses of class or race, you see that those gaps just get even bigger as you get into perhaps families or areas of disadvantage. And I then, I then looked around and said, well, who's looking seriously at this issue? 
in ways that is nonpartisan, that's driven by the data, and and they couldn't find very many. And I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem in our in our communities and in our society if we can't just look squarely at the problems that poison men are facing and try to address them. And that that led me down the path to the book. Fascinating. And so, you you mentioned the modern male. Um, mm. Who are you? Who are you speaking to? Are you talking about in the last ten years, last twenty years? What where who who are you classifying as the modern male? Well, that, that's actually a really great question. Thank you for that. Uh, I haven't had it asked in quite that way before. But uh, mm. I, I, for me, really, I think about the last fifty years. You know, so I just mentioned that data point from you know 1972. And if you think about you know, the last roughly half century or so, just the transformation we've seen in our economy, in our society, um, has just been profound. And in most, and arguably in many ways, just uh, fantastic changes, right? So we've seen a huge uh, rise in the economic independence of women, for example, in that time period, which has been uh, just, I think, one of the most astonishing and positive economic changes in, in human history, frankly. I mean, you only have to go back to... In 1979, only about one in 10 women earned more than the average man. Now, 40% of women earn more than the average man. Now, that's an astonishing change and an incredibly positive one. But it does, of course, raise some very big questions about what does it mean about our families? What does it mean about the role of men? And I think what we've done is we've we've really given a powerful new script to women and girls, which is about empowerment and economic independence and one that I fully support. But... I don't really think we're doing a very good job of giving a good new script to our boys and men. What we're telling them is what they can't be anymore and what they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. We're doing a really bad job of setting out an equally empowering and, and positive and affirming agenda for boys and men. And I think that's the hole that a lot of our boys and men are falling into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know um, we, we spend a lot of time uh, uh, talking about, as you've, you just pointed out, what not to do. Yeah. Uh, but, but not actually giving a set of instructions. Um, I, now, I am the least qualified to talk about this, this is why I'm so uh, interested in the topic. I, my, I have four girls, so um, I, I have no experience at all other than my own um, growing up as a boy. Um, and um, and so I don't know what it's like, um, what those challenges are. Uh, you know, really funny thing that happened. I had a friend over uh, years and years ago, um, and and we were watching football. And his son, uh, he brought his son, who was about two or three at the time, and and he he just uh, jumped up and ran over the top of the couch. And I I was so confused. I didn't know. I didn't realize <laughs> like boys do that. You know, so because it was not something. So that's that's my experience with little boys, um, but. But I do want to, I want to ask you, so you, you did mention some very key ways in which um, things have changed. So you talked about in the workplace, um, certainly uh, in academia and, mm-hmm. and, and progress there. Um, what are some other ways that uh, we've seen those statistics go uh, in a negative a direction uh, for male uh, productivity, even or even um, uh, performance, if you will. Yeah, well, we've seen uh, there's this huge gap in education, as I've mentioned, but we're now seeing a drop in college enrollment among many men across the board. And one of the results of that is without some kind of post-secondary 
credential now, it's increasingly hard to get a decently paid job. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, men with only a high school diploma are doing so badly in the labor market. Among among men with, with no more than a high school diploma, one in three are out of the labor force. It's about 10 million men. Uh, and so just being left behind by these economic changes and those economic changes have really shifted away. We've seen less heavy industry a move away from manufacturing again because of changes in automation, free trade. Those disproportionately affected men's jobs. That's just an that's just an economic fact. It's it's not directly related to the rise of women in the labor force at all. It's not like women are taking men's jobs. Right. That's that's the completely the wrong framing. What's happened is that women are doing much better. But at the same time, a lot of those traditionally male jobs have been really, really, really hollowed out. And I would also say that some of the trends I mentioned earlier in terms of suicide, opioid addiction, et cetera, they have gotten a lot worse. So male suicides have risen about 25% in the last 10 years or so. And so we are seeing kind of more and more men taking their own lives than we did previously. And actually one of the one of the moments that you kind of get stopped in your tracks is you, you're going through all this data, you're looking at charts, uh, you know, it's what you do when you're a Brookings scholar, right? Um, but then I came across this study which actually just uh, looked at the words that men had used to describe themselves before they committed suicide or attempted suicide. And the study found that the two words men were most likely to use were useless, mm. worthless. Mm. I think what's happening here is that we've just failed to rescript masculinity look our boys in the eye and say, we've got their back, say, here's how to be in the world today. Um, in a world of gender equality, which is a marvelous thing, but it, it, they need more help. And absent that, what happens is that if men don't feel needed, then they end up either in deaths of despair from suicide, alcohol or drugs or retreating. Um, and we end up benching our men because we haven't got a good story to tell them. And we don't send a message to them that they are precious in our sight, that they're important to our families, they're important to their kids, they're important to our society. And that has a very, very corrosive effect uh, if, it, if it's left unaddressed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, you, you read my mind because as you were talking, before you, you said the word, I wrote masculinity and, and a question mark um, mm -hmm. because I, it made me think about definitions of what it means across the board what what does um what does it mean to be a man what does it mean what what are the roles that men have uh, mm. uh came to mind and then of course there's the matter of all of the images that 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 boys see that become men and and frankly um the the the, the masculine um image that gets portrayed in a lot of ways just not that it ever existed right <laughs> but it just that it just does well they they are surprised that either how difficult it is to live up to that version of you know uh, who's on whether it's james bond or some other character um mm -hmm. but but the conversations that are missing around what it means and what masculinity is 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 certainly important yeah i think that's in some ways that's the real heart of the problem so we've talked about these trends in education employment mental health but i think deep down underneath all of that there is a much deeper question which is the one that you're addressing now which is what does it mean to be male is there such a thing as masculinity and if so to what extent is it a good or a bad thing 
Um, or how do we make it a good thing? And so I've been really concerned with the way the debate about toxic masculinity has developed. Now, it's worth saying, I think, that this is something I learned from my godson, that you know the idea of masculinity being toxic is not a new one for black men in America. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's now being applied much more generally. And so there's this sense that there may be something about masculinity itself that's inherently suspect. You know, it it reminds me a little bit sometimes of a kind of the misapplied notion of, of, of original sin, right? Um, in the sense that uh, it's sort of uh, there's something in you that you're born with and that you can't get rid of except hope to be forgiven for. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, sometimes feel like masculinity is treated a bit that way too. Yes. You know, it's a shame you've got all these masculine traits, but you are more physical. Like the example you just gave of the kids jumping over the sofas. I've got to tell you, with three boys, I mean, like that's what sofas are for. <laughs> That's what they're for, right? If you didn't know that before, you've learned it now. Right. Um, all right, and like, we'd have to, you know, boys are like dogs. You have to run them out at least twice a day. Uh-huh. Um, and so they're more physical. They obviously have different different approaches towards you know things as opposed to people. They tend to communicate shoulder to shoulder, not face to face. They are more driven a bit by sex, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, they get filled with testosterone in, in their, in, in their uh, teens, you know, and I've lived through those years by myself as a man. <laughs> That's something that, you you know, you, you can speak to, yes. um, but also through my boys. And so, actually, I think this whole idea of toxic, non-toxic is incredibly bad framing. Far better, I think, to think about mature masculinity versus immature masculinity. Right? How do we grow up? How do we learn how to have how to be men with many of those feelings and orientations but but to to do so in a way that's appropriate in modern society and what's frustrating about this is that people sometimes frame it as a nature versus nurture debate which is incredibly stupid in my view because if you accept there are some natural differences that makes culture even more important mm-hmm. because culture is what taught me how to go from being a boy to being a man mm-hmm. Um, and absent those cultural scripts and role models and messages, like how do I go from being, I don't know what you were like. How, how were you when you were 14? I was pretty messed up when I was 14. What were you like? Did you have your shit together when you were 14? <laughs> hardly, hardly. Right. You know, it, it was a long way from, uh, from, from where things are today. Right. And so something happens and it's called growing up. Yeah. And we have to help our boys grow up into good men. And good men includes being in favor of women's equality, et cetera. But it also means good as men. Mm-hmm. And that means being a good father. Mm-hmm. It means being a good friend. It means being a good partner. It means being a good neighbor. And if we don't, if we think that somehow invents itself, if we think masculinity invents itself, we've made a profound error because every known human society has had to find ways to have positive versions of masculinity. And if we think that we're somehow exempt from that challenge, then we've made a very bad error. And then what happens is online, boys and men who don't find good role models around them or good stories to tell about what it means to be a man, they'll find someone online. But we might not, We might not like who they find. Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, you know, I know we we have a very limited time. I do have one other question I want to um, ask you, and you made some great points here. Um, just thinking about your research and what you've seen, um, are there differences that are that are cropping up that you see around subgroups or subcategories? In, in terms of uh, ethnicity, social economic groups, or even geographically, 
Uh, are there differences in the ways that men are struggling? Are you seeing one group versus another that is in one place or as a part of a certain ethnic group or other that tends to have more of one one of these uh, uh, indicators of struggle um, than others? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And all three of those, actually, I mean, both you know, race and economics, economic and, and geography, and of course, they all you know, overlap um to quite a significant extent but you certainly see that it's it's not men at the top by and large who are struggling the most mm-hmm. and it's that's part of the problem because if you're trying to persuade people who are in relatively affluent well-educated circles and communities it's kind of harder to persuade them that that boys and men are struggling because they don't see quite as much of it right, you know? right. i mean it's not that they don't see some of it but they don't see the full depth of it but if you go into a low-income community a working class community of any race actually that's where you'll see the biggest gender gaps in everything including in education if you look at the gaps between black men and black women and black boys and black girls that's where you see the biggest gaps of all every every black man getting a college degree there are two black women getting a college degree in fact there are now black women are now slightly more likely to get a postgraduate qualification than white men Mm-hmm. Um, black women and black men are really on quite different tracks in many of many of our communities and so that's another way in which you have to think about this in kind of more than through more than one lens and then and then of course there is something of a rural urban divide too where you're seeing very often actually girls from rural areas will do better at school they might go off to college and they're more likely to be geographically mobile and the guys are tending to get a little bit left behind and so you can actually see even within families like the poorer the family the poorer the neighborhood the worse the boys are doing. And so what that means is that male disadvantage can get passed on because boys raised in poor neighborhoods and poor households tend to do badly mm-hmm. to the girls, which means that they won't do as well at work and so on. And so intergenerational disadvantage has a bit has somewhat more of a male flavor than a female flavor. And so if we're serious about any kind of equality or opportunity, then we have to get really serious about boys and men. And and I'm very frustrated with the failure of our you know, political culture um, to do that. I'm actually speaking to you right now from uh, from Olympia in Washington, where they they are actively pursuing the creation of a commission on boys and men at a state level to complement the existing women's one. And I'm really encouraged by that kind of initiative. I think that people are really waking up to the fact that we can think two thoughts at once, and that we cannot neglect our boys and men if we want our society to flourish. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. One one last thing. Uh, so most of my audience uh, is uh, um, is of the uh, individuals that are professionals in education. Yeah. What do you suggest that we we think about going forward in schools? Do we need curricula that are aimed to um, to have these conversations? But what what should education circles be talking about and doing? So the, I think you're right to start with pedagogy and just in terms of learning styles and recognizing that there are some differences. You know, the work of Michael Gurian is someone I would point people towards there. Again, on average, of course, but there, there are some differences in learning styles. But more specifically, if you're an educator or you're an education policy position, the fact that we have fewer and fewer men teaching is, I think, close to a national scandal. 
Um, it's already 20, only 24% of our K-12 teachers are men, which is down from 33% a few decades ago. Um, there are almost no early years educators that are men. In fact, as a share of the professions, we have twice as many women flying U.S. military planes as we do men teaching kindergarten. And kids believe their eyes, not their ears, right? And as the women's movement taught us, you have to be it. You have to see it to be it. So I think the hollowing out of men from education especially in K-12, is a massive problem. And so more of a, more technical high schools would be good and a more investment in high-quality vocational learning, apprenticeships, et cetera, and more opportunities for extracurricular activities, including sports, et cetera, whether it's a chess club or, a, or football or whatever it is, which, again, you very often need male coaches for, um, which lean in a little bit more to some of the differences between kind of boys and girls. We don't want an education system that you know, is just better suited to one sex than the other. And I think you could argue that we used to have one that was better suited to boys than to girls in many ways. But we don't want to go to the other extreme, which is where I fear we are now, which is that through no ill intent, no one's planned it this way, that we have an education system that's actually somewhat favors girls uh, over boys. And so I'd start by looking around your classrooms and saying, how are we teaching? Then I'd look at who we're we hiring. And then I'd look at what other kind of vocational opportunities we're giving and above all just making sure that we're not in some way i don't think we're doing this explicitly you know deliberately but i i feel sometimes educators have a standard of what it you should be like in a classroom which is a feminine standard uh -huh. Uh -huh. and so i fear that we're at it almost at a policy level or at a classroom level sending the message either implicitly or explicitly to boys why aren't you more like your sister? Mm -hmm. Why aren't you more like the girl sitting next to you? She can sit still. She can take notes. She can remember she has homework to turn in. What's wrong with you? And so we inadvertently start to judge boys against the feminine standard. And that is just as wrong as the other way around. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we need to get to the point where, just as you said so well earlier, that we can do more than one thing at the same time. So we can have two thoughts. We can focus on two issues at the same time. It's not um, to the exclusion of one, but also um, the the emphasis we can place in anywhere we choose. So uh, thank you. For that. Um, so um, I, in respect of your time, I, I, I really appreciate you and again, your patience. Um, can, you, can you tell us where we can follow, where you're writing, um, um, any social media handles or anything you'd like to share? Um, so, because I know people are going to want to read um, a lot more about what you've done. I know you have another book um, that is about uh, uh, the American upper middle class. I haven't yeah. gotten to that one yet. Yeah, well, that, it's sort of it's all related um, because that's more about kind of the intersection of class and inequality. But but sure. So um, I'm Richard V. Reed, as you said in the introduction, and the, the reason for the V is because there is another Richard Reed, a famous yeah. historian, who I occasionally got confused with, and vice versa. But I'm Richard V. Reeves.com. Uh, that's who I am on Twitter uh, uh, and all other social media platforms. But I would encourage people to check out the brookings website we have a boys and men project at brookings now and i have a substack called of boys and men so if people want to learn more i awesome. strongly encourage them to go in that direction awesome awesome well uh richard thank you so much for having this conversation i've been in, increased by this and um, i'm sure our paths will cross again and so until then go well stay well